Welcome back into the Royals Farm Report. My name is Joel Benfield, joined as always by Alex Duvall. Alex, we got a couple of uh, championship teams to talk about today. What a feeling that is. Outstanding feeling, Joel. I was um, I was going back earlier today. I was just kind of looking back at some of the Royals, like when Eric Hosmer and Mike Moustakis were winning championships in the minor leagues. I was just kind of going back and and looking through and seeing who all was on those teams and what they ended up becoming and how those teams won their games. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of parallels to that Quad Cities team. And ironically, the the only real parallel is that, you know, Quad Cities, and we're going to talk to some of the guys today, Quad Cities has a stack of legitimate, very good prospects in their own right. But the guys who rightfully get the most of the attention are all in AAA Omaha. And I know those guys started the year at AA, but the two teams that won their championships didn't have any of Melinda's Prado or Bobby Witt Jr. on the team to finish the season out. So, um, you know, one of the parallels I saw, you know, was a lot of offense and, and really good bullpens throughout, right? That's that's kind of like the Royals. It was like their trademark. But um, something you see on these teams, again, is really good offense and then these dynamite bullpens. I know Quad Cities ran out there the other day. It was Nate Webb at 100 miles an hour. They had Will Klein, Caden Monk, and um, – Zach Hockey coming out of the bullpen, like, my gosh, man, what are you supposed to do with that if you're an A-ball? Everybody comes out of the bullpen and throwing 97-plus. So uh, really interesting to see some of the parallels that exist between those, those former championship teams and these two championship teams. And I'm excited to talk to these guys about just, you know, what all is going to be, um, you know, coming for them in the future and uh, see how they felt about their uh, team this season. Yeah, it was super interesting to when you actually look at the way the season went for both of these clubs. In Quad Cities, they just ran roughshod through High A Central. Like I said on the last episode, they had the best record in the league by like 11 games. They, they just beat everybody. And then they get into the, the championship series against Cedar Rapids and kind of get punched in the mouth. And they're down two to one, backs against the wall. And then they find a way to win in game five with that dynamite bullpen that you talked about. But it was interesting to see. And then you look at Northwest Arkansas, and even when they had Nick Prado and MJ Melendez and Bobby Wood Jr. in the middle of that lineup, they were a 500 team. They were they just couldn't find a way to just string a bunch of wins together. They leave, and MJ, you know, MJ leaves a couple of weeks later, and they just start rattling off all of these wins and sneak into the playoffs on the last day. They got that last spot. Uh, to face the Wichita wind surge in the uh, the championship series on the last day of the season when they had to win and they did it. And then they go and sweep Wichita, who had been the best team in the league all year. So you kind of had these divergent paths that, you know, they kind of, the roles were reversed kind of at the end of the year. Uh, but at the end of the day, still find a way to win two league championships for the Royals to do. Uh, I mean, that's a big deal. And I'll say it before and I'll say it again. Dayton Moore puts a premium on stuff like this. You know, the, the front office in the Royals organization wants these guys to win together. And for a lot of these guys, it was their first championship for, you know, some of these guys, it's, this is like the third one that they've won uh, in the minors between Lexington and Wilmington and Northwest Arkansas for a guy like, uh, like Sully Matias, for example. And I'm sure there's, there's some other guys that were on those teams respectively, but uh, it's not the first championship for a lot of these guys. And, Winning is contagious, and when you do it at that level, it just continues to move up. It's the same thing that happened with those the the guys like Moose and Haas and Salvi that were winning single A and double A titles. It eventually leads to kind of what we saw, you know, in 2014 and 15. Not always, but knowing how to win in those types of situations, and it's so important, and it's instilled so early in the organization having championship teams like this. 
Well, and it's, you know, it's a cultural thing. Like I find in coaching high school, and I remember back to college, like you have to almost teach kids how to win and how to expect to win. And so like in saying that, like doing competition and teaching kids how to celebrate winning. And we talked, and, and by the way, when they brought James Shields over from the Rays, that was part of his deal was that they had to learn how to celebrate the winning along with not being too down on the losses, that it's okay to celebrate a minor win in the middle of June, right? Um, and we do that in high school. We, we have kids compete all the time, and then we celebrate them when they win so that they get used to celebrating their wins. They get used to the feeling of winning, and that sounds silly maybe, but it is legitimately something you have to you have to go through. And by the way, we saw that play out in the biggest way possible this year with MJ Melendez and Nick Prado. We saw that in the biggest way this year with MJ Melendez and Nick Prado is we asked them during the season, you know, on the podcast about their mental coming into the year. And they're like, you know what? Um, we really just kind of focus on um, – you know, the championship, that's all we really talk about. And I asked JJ Piccolo in a news conference at the beginning of the season, you know, how impressed have you been with MJ and Nick and their development? And he goes, you know, all you ever hear them talk about is the championship. If they don't win that championship, who knows how bad they're dragging on and how bad they're thinking about their bad season. Instead, they come in, all they're thinking about is the championship season. They won. Who cares what else? It's the idea that winning fixes all. And who knows if they have these turnaround seasons if they don't win that championship. I'm not saying they don't, but does it certainly help? Yeah. I mean, going up to the plate and not having to worry about the fact that you're hitting 150 because the rest of your team's got your back and that you can go out in the field and play good defense and contribute to a team that's going to win a championship, it absolutely matters. And I know, you know, I, I can hear it now, like some analytics folks saying, oh, winning in the minors doesn't matter. It's performance. It's this. It's that. It's the other. I'm telling you, it matters. Teaching kids how to win matters. Teaching them to expect to win, how to win, and what to do when you win, it matters. It absolutely matters. We see it at every level of baseball, from high school to college to the professional level, um, You know, going all the way to James Shields coming over to the Royals in 2013. So I think it's absolutely critical that they continue to put an, um, a premium on winning championships like that, and it's great to see these teams continue to win here in 2021. It goes back to the old adage of winning cures all. Like you may have a terrible game one day, and but you but if you still win the ball game at the end of the day, you leave the ballpark at least feeling with at least some semblance of like a positive mindset because you still found a way to go out and win in a sport where it is a grind day in day out to win all of these games. You're playing 115 games in like 130 days or something like that. You know, in the minors, you just don't you don't have off days very often. So to be able to still grind and win despite your, maybe your own personal failures or personal setbacks. It does mean something because at the end of the day, you can still look to, okay, well, we still found a way to win tomorrow. I'm going to help us contribute to win. And, you know, and just that, that mindset, it festers and it feeds and it keeps going. And even though like you have the, the Nick Prado, the Bobby Wood Jr., the MJ Melendez, like they're going to get their championship rings because they were on the double a roster at some, you know, at a certain point. And even if uh, Omaha isn't moving on in the the AAA playoffs, they still had a really good year. And Omaha, on the whole, had a really solid year, uh, even with all the kind of the the roster, you know, flux, you know, and always in flux, guys moving back and forth. Edward Edward Olivares having, like, I'm pretty sure he has some kind of stock in I-29 now. And (laughs) 
And so they can at least look at that as well. Like, Hey, I had a really good year. And a lot of these guys that are winning now, especially the double A guys, there are some dudes in double A that are going to be helping the big league club really soon. So it's not like these guys are winning in low A and they're still three years away. Like the winning and that type of winning mindset is very close to being in Kansas city. And then it's a matter of learning how to win at the big league level. And when you have some veteran leadership in that clubhouse of guys like Salvador Perez and, you know, wit, you know, at least like learning how to, you know, be in the grind of a big league season, that's going to help right away. And that's why I think the, the youth movement that's coming very soon, isn't going to you know cause Kansas city to lose a crap ton of games. Uh, they're going to start winning a lot sooner because they have guys that are, have learned how to win very early on in their career. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm excited to see what they do. I'm excited to see the culture they bring with them to the big league level because this may, this may sound bad, and it, it does. I don't really mean it exactly the way it's going to sound, but this Royals team we've watched this year is just kind of lifeless. Like, I'm not saying they don't play hard. I'm not saying they don't play with 100% of what they have all the time, but they don't have the energy. And, I, and I, again, I don't even mean the energy. Like, it's not any way – I'm not in any way implying that they don't play with as much energy as any other team in the league. I just mean that, like, they don't have the appeal – and the, the attitude and the charisma of, like, that 2014 team, 2015 team. Like, the relationship that Eric Hosmer and Lorenzo Cain, Moose, and Salvi all had with Gerard Dyson, the jean jacket picture, like, this team doesn't have that. This team has Ryan O'Hearn. This team has Andrew Benintendi, who used to be fun when he played in Boston, and now Benintendi is just like an old man at 26 years old. By the way, I saw that the other day. Like, Andrew Benintendi and Nicky Lopez are the same age, like, we think of Lopez as like this young guy and Benintendi is like this veteran. They're the same age. So, but like this team is just like, I don't know. They don't have a lot of like spunk to them, man. So I'm excited to see what MJ and Prado and Wit, if they can bring some youth, bring some, some energy into the clubhouse and see if they can't just not just make this team more fun to watch by winning, but make them more fun to watch by being more fun on the field. And maybe Mike Matheny will kill all that before we have a chance to see it. Maybe he won't we'll actually get to have fun watching this team, but I don't mean like this team wasn't fun to watch in terms of their production because they weren't, but like in terms of like the, the characters that were part of the team this year it is kind of bleh. Yeah, I got, I'm with you. And you know what, we're actually about to talk to somebody right now on the other side of this break that I think has a great personality. that's going to help this big league club and give us some fun stuff off the field too. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Vinny Pasquantino and Nicholas Batters, who is the play-by-play guy for the Northwest Arkansas Naturals this year. Uh, did a great job. He gave us some great calls throughout the year that, you know, from the little clips we showed and talk about that team. And then there'll be another break. And then we're going to be joined by Will Klein and Michael Massey, part of the high A quad cities championship team. We're just going to have some fun and kind of reminisce on the year and uh, talk about some winning clubs. It's something that we have not gotten to do very often, uh, even, you know, especially with the big league club. Uh, but like we talked about, hopefully this is a springboard, just what we can see in the future in Kansas city and, you know, it starts with these guys. So uh, we will have a quick break and then we'll talk to Vinny and Nicholas. And then you'll hear Will and uh, Michael on the other side of that. Alex and I are now joined by Nick Batters. He is the uh, play-by-play announcer for the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. Uh, called a bunch of great games this year for that club. And a member of that championship club, longtime uh, friend of the show, Vinny Pasquantino. What's up, guys? How are we doing? 
What's up, guys? I feel like I'm on another host of this podcast right now. You're getting me primed because I got one of my own to film this week. So this is great. This is just good to, you know, get off the pine, so to speak, and just get my voice ready for, for more podcasts. Alex, what we talked about before the ad break, just it fits just perfectly right there. <laughs> it does indeed. And it's ironic. Vinny, I was reading that um, interview slash piece that was done in The Athletic with Alec Lewis. Um, that so I, the first time we had you on the podcast, I was like, damn, this kid's pretty good. Like, you know, so we get we get some guys on that are obviously kind of nervous and they're obviously kind of like maybe it's their first time being on a podcast and you jumped in, did a great job. And then you and Alex Fuez run um, a podcast. What What's the name of your podcast you guys do again? It's a whole new ball game. That is the name new, of our podcast. That's right. A whole new ball game. I read in that piece. You were big into theater in um, in high school. You were in several plays you guys did at your high school and mm -hmm. then now you're helping out um or you're you're co-hosting a podcast of your own how much of the um media side of baseball do you consume like outside of playing like how much do you watch of like mlb network and see what those guys do for like and on their side of the gig well it's funny because during the season none um because there's just so much going on that you you know when it's noon on a tuesday you don't really want to put on the mlb network when you just played a game but it's funny because last night I watched my first game of the year, which has happened to be the Yankees-Red Sox, and I caught it in the bottom of the seventh inning where it was just absolute mayhem going on um, in that game. And then today I found myself watching the MLB Network. So I would say uh, in the offseason, 100 times more than in the season. So probably every day now I'm consuming something baseball, whereas during the season my consumption of baseball has to do with, you know, it being what I do for a living. That's outstanding. And Nicholas, obviously, um, working in the baseball media side of things, how much of what you do is watching guys like Rex Hudler, watching guys like Vince Scully in L.A., watching the guys who are really good at what they do, and then trying to, 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 to put your own spin on how you deliver a baseball game and, you know, watching – and minor league baseball is a little bit different than MLB because in the MLB they have mostly – like on a 26-man roster, you're probably dealing with like 18, 19, 20, the same guys most of the year. Sure. You've got to have not just a really good grip of guys on the Naturals roster on opening day, but probably semi-familiar with the guys on the Quad Cities roster. Some guys like Vinny come up from high A and fill in for the back half of the season uh, that you can, you know, just kind of roll with it. Um, but So how much do you get from watching guys and how much work goes into that? It's, it's a lot of work. And, and I'm kind of in the same boat as Vinny, where during this season, I'm really locked in on the natural stuff. Uh, and I, I, I'm not spending a ton, a ton of time outside of outside of the season watching MLB Network. Um, but a lot of what I'm doing during the season outside of natural stuff, it's watching Omaha games, watching Quad Cities, watching Columbia, uh, watching Royals games for that matter. Uh, I'm really close. I have good relationships with all the other broadcasters for the Royals minor league affiliates. We talk to each other on a daily basis. Um, so a lot of it's staying in communication with with them um, and and doing my best to to keep up as much as I can. It, it can be kind of difficult. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll pop on a podcast or if, if there's another minor league game going on uh, when I'm working on my game notes each day, I may I may listen to that. But uh, it it could be a struggle to keep up with everything that's going on. But I certainly do my best. I will say my favorite part about how you call a game is that all of the big plays where a lot of times on some of those minor league broadcasts, some of you guys. I, I don't know how old you are, but a lot of you guys are pretty young yeah. um, and getting into the broadcasting game. And some of the calls feel forced. 
and I never felt that way listening to a Naturals game. It, there was, in fact, there was one game. Nick Prado hit a ball over the bullpen, and all you hear from Nicholas is Nick Prado. Wow! <laughs> I laughed. I laughed so hard for a couple of minutes. I had to like pause the game, and I watched that little. I watched that home run clip probably five times in a row. Just Nick Prado. Wow! I was a little disappointed though when Vinny gets up. We didn't have like like a, an Italian band ready to play every time you hit a home run or something, or like the, um, what's the, um, the funicular song. I, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but I was a little disappointed we didn't have any music. Are you, are you working on calls for your next? Cause there's a couple more um, very Italian names in high A yeah. We're working on spicing up the uh, names a little bit in, in a very Rex Hudler way. The big thing for me, I don't want it to ever be too contrived. I just want it to be natural, which is uh, no pun intended. Um, oh, that was a pun intended. You absolutely meant to do that. <laughs> you were waiting for a time to say that. I get it. I get it. Uh, but I, I don't. I don't ever want it to anything to feel too forced. Which I mean, you mentioned there's there's some times where you're literally just watching a game, whether it's Vinny, Nick, Bobby, someone else, just as an absolute moonshot, and literally that's your first reaction. It's wow, he just hit the ball 450 feet, um, and. I mean, it's, it's fun, right? I'm getting paid to, to watch and talk about baseball for a living. So I'm just trying to have as much fun as possible, really, um, and give my my genuine reactions to, to what's going on, not letting not let anything feel forced. Um, I just I want the, the viewer to feel like they're with me, having a good time with me um, and not as much of a, a broadcast as it is a as it is a conversation, really. All right, Vinny. So I want to go into what we you know. This last the last week of the season leading up to what what eventually was the championship series, like you guys, there wasn't a guaranteed playoff spot. You guys needed to win, you know, just keep winning and stacking on some wins to clinch that playoff berth. And you did on the last day of the season. How was the mood and the vibe in the locker room during that when you know it's win or we're going to go home a week early and we don't have the opportunity to play for a championship? Like how did how did you guys as a group handle that type of pressure? I guess. <laughs> There were so many different emotions, I think, going on those last week, week and a half, because it, it felt like our season would end if we lose. So I remember multiple times I would be on the phone with somebody after games and be like, I don't know, that may have done it for us. And then you check the scores of the other games and every other team that we needed to lose lost. It was just one of those things like if we lost, so did the other two teams that we needed to win or needed to lose. And then if we'd win, you know, sometimes you get lucky and the team loses or but really winning was the answer to just staying in it for us. So all we needed to do was win it, not to necessarily get in, but to keep the threat of us getting in alive. And that last week, I mean, it was just unbelievable. I believe we won on Tuesday, lost Wednesday, won Thursday, lost Friday. So I think we split. Is that right? Yeah, we split the first two or the first four games. So we split the first four, and I think we're a game and a half out or something at this point with two games left with two teams ahead of us and one a half game behind us. Now, one of them was we knew that they were a half game ahead of us, really, because we own the tiebreaker on them. But then we win Saturday. Both of the teams lose. And now it just comes into a, okay, if we win and they lose again, we're in. <laughs> so our game started an hour after both of those games. So we're scoreboard watching. I mean, how could you not be? And obviously, you want to take care of your own business, right? That is, that is step one is win the game. But I don't think focus was taken away from winning the game. And obviously, we did end up winning the game. So that – you know, whatever. But so we're scoreboard watching and we're up for nothing, something like that. And we find out Frisco takes a 10-7 lead going into the 
into the bottom of the ninth inning against Amarillo. And we're all like, okay, well, we're going to win this game, but it's not going to matter. We're not going to make it in. And I'm out at first base, and people in the dugout are like, they they know what's going on in this other game. I mean, it's almost getting to the point of our game where the game's almost over. Like, you know, unless just a colossal collapse, we're, you know, we're going to win the game. And I see everybody huddled around, and then all of a sudden everybody starts freaking out. Everybody starts freaking out in the dugout. And I'm out at first base, and I'm just looking at this time the guy gets on first. And – so now I'm looking into the dugout and Brett Bewley looks at me and just goes home run. And it's just, so then I look at him, I know what the score of the game is. And I just look at him, I say three or four, like how many runs he looks at me and says three. So now I know that they're tied. I come in, then they go into extra innings. And then, then we find out uh, that they end up losing Clay Dungan scores on a run around third that put us up to seven or something. And I just say to him as he's running up and go, Hey, we're in the playoffs. Just to let you know that everything that we needed to happen happened. So then from that moment, it was, okay, now i got to find a place to sleep tonight because everything was all pointing towards us not making the playoffs. And, you know, we were playing a one o'clock game. I was going to – the plan is just to drive home after the game. And then next thing you know, we're in the playoffs, and now it turns into, all right, let's go win this thing, right? I mean, the saying is if you're going to be there, might as well win it. So we all wanted to make the playoffs. Everything worked out for us to make the playoffs. And then we get in. And then we sweep and win the whole thing. So uh, there can't be but too many better feelings than that. So then, Nick, obviously you have a significant emotional investment in this, being the guy that is there day in, day out, calling the games and getting to know all these players, and you can feel the pressure. How are you handling this this side of it too? Because obviously you're able to scoreboard watch as you're calling the game as well. How did I handle it? Not especially well. Um, I was. We we came back from Wichita that Sunday before the final week of the season, and I remember, I remember thinking, man, I stayed up until probably 2 or 3 a.m. I was telling Vinny this. I was up late because I was trying to figure out every possible scenario that could happen that week. And I think it ended up being three or 4,000 different results that the week, week could have unfolded with. Um, and it was, it, there was one path that I saw as being the most likely, um, but it would have taken a lot out of the natural's control in order to make that happen. That's exactly what happened. I don't think I've ever done as much scoreboard watching on a broadcast as we did over that final week. And it's funny because into that Sunday game, uh, Vinny was mentioning the the Clay Dungan uh, double, I think it was seventh or eighth inning. At that exact moment, um, I figured, you know what, let's do a live look into the the Amarillo-Frisco game. Uh, So Clay hits the double, crowd's going crazy. I fade in the, the broadcast from Amarillo. First pitch, Stone Garrett hits that walk-off home run. So it was literally like a span of, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, 30 seconds apart that those two things happened from the Naturals getting that really important insurance um, to Amarillo walking off of Frisco. So that was a that was a really special weekend because obviously there was good team baseball the entire season, but especially over those last five, six wins, everyone in the lineup top to bottom was contributing, which was really fun for me to watch. Um, and as you mentioned, being so close to everyone watching the team day in, day out, I want them to win just as much as they want to win because I have um, that big emotional investment. And you kind of felt like once once the playoff spot was secured, there was a lot of good momentum heading into those final three games. Um, and it was just a team that couldn't be stopped, really. It was, it was so much fun to watch. Vinny, I want to ask you about the – the kind of the dynamic in that clubhouse. Um, it's kind of ironic. We were just talking about it off the air a little bit when 
three of the three of your best players on the team get promoted to Omaha. It seems like that's when the lineup kind of like clicked together. And it reminded me, this is a terrible example. This is what it reminded me of. It reminded me a little bit of the Chiefs defense back in 28, 2019. Um, Patrick Mahomes goes down in Denver. The Chiefs defense had been awful up to this point. And then it's like the Chiefs defense went on a run. It's like, hey, we lost Pat. We're going to be out. We're going to be without Pat for a couple games. Um, they almost beat Green Bay at home. They do beat Minnesota without Mahomes. And then the defense was much improved from there. They go on and win the Super Bowl. It's almost like when Melendez and Prado and Witt got promoted, the rest of your lineup and the rest of the pitching staff said, hey, there go, you know, three of the five, six best players on this team. Um, the rest of us are going to have to step up and really kind of pull together, and, and, and that's what, exactly what happened. I mentioned a few times on Twitter, Brewer Hicklin down the stretch was out of his mind at the plate. There were a few guys like that. Suli Matias had a great couple of weeks there at the end of the season. Austin Cox was pitching incredibly well down the stretch. You guys had a just a tandem of, of guys really step up. What was, the, what was the dynamic like? You come from Quad Cities. You're absolutely destroying teams down there. You come to Northwest Arkansas, who was playing good baseball, not great baseball, but good baseball. And then down the stretch, you guys were just prolific um, for, for the last month and a half or so. Well, it's, it's interesting because obviously I wasn't on the team with those three guys, right? I played with MJ for two weeks, so I can't speak to how the three of them were. What I know is how great MJ was in the clubhouse and everything like that. But <clears throat> I think once everybody, you know, once the three guys left, those are, you could argue, you know, the, the three guys in that order, right? Once those guys left, who was there in, in terms of uh, quote-unquote status, right? Who Who was MILB Pipeline going to tweet about on that team? Uh, nobody, right? And I think that became the identity of that team is let's just go win. That's it. Let's go win because it's more fun to show up and kick somebody's ass than to show up and get your ass kicked. And I think that was <laughs> that was the mindset. And sorry for – Cussing Royals Farm Report. Um, that's on me. Not I'll pay that fine. Uh, <laughs> but that—that's what the identity became. Is let's let's walk in here and slap a team in the face, and that's a lot of fun to play like that. There's, you know, there's no pressure when you're playing like that because all that matters is scoring more runs than the other team. It doesn't matter if you go four for four because what you're worried about when you go home is if you lost or win. You know, but, and there was the same thing in Quad Cities too. A team shows up, is prepared to slap another team in the face, and go home. That was it. Come get your job done. Let's win a game. Let's go home. Because the way that both of those teams I was on, it wasn't a big deal when we won. And that's how I think it should be. <laughs> right? You know what wins should be celebrated is game three of the championship series when the season's over. Not game 72, because you should be winning game 72, in my opinion. Right? I mean – We've, there's different philosophies on everything, but if I could go 162 and 0 or 120 and 0, that's what I want to do because we didn't take any days off when it came to winning, and you know that's what made both those teams I was on special. Is we wanted to go out and sweep every team that we played. We didn't want to give them one. Obviously, it's really hard to sweep, especially in baseball and especially over a six-game series. But that was the mindset of that team: is we're going to show up, we're going to win, we're going to leave, and you know it ended up working out for both of those teams. That reminds me a little bit of that Johnny Gomes speech on the um, at Union Station at the Royals. I, I actually don't know, Vinny, if you maybe never heard this. Um, Johnny Gomes gets up on Union at Union Station after the Royals win in 2015. 
And uh, he wasn't yeah. on the active roster when he gave right during those. Right. Right. No, he's yeah, like he wearing like a tank top playoff. in the middle of October. Yeah. He has, he's carrying around an American flag. And, and I meant that in like a, a more impressive way than a less. Yes. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. no. 100% just rookie of the year. Not on our team. Beat him. MVP. Not on our team. We beat him. Absolutely legendary. Um, especially in terms of like Royals folklore. Uh, will go down in history as one of the greatest speeches ever given by the club. Um, but you're right in, in, in a way um, that there were I – mean, anytime you lose three guys like that, and, and, and I, I don't want to act like the, you know, the, the world revolves around, but, I mean, Nick Prado, Bobby Witt Jr., MJ Melendez, a, lot of, a few really talented dudes. Um, the, the way that you guys played after that, and, and like you said, you played with MJ for a little bit, but the way that the Naturals played after that, even before you got there for a little bit, Vinny, it just felt like there was a, like some kind of, of, of something that pulled the team together, and all of a sudden, everybody's hitting. Freddie Fermin went on a tear and absolutely lit the world on fire for a couple of weeks. And even I was watching that get, watching him hit for a little bit. I'm like, look, man, I knew he had it, but my God, like this is, this is incredible. I think he had a home run like 430 feet. It was just, it was so cool to watch down the stretch. I, Nicholas, I want to get your thoughts on this too, because like we said with Vinny, you know, the team loaded with talent, playing like 500 baseball, just seemed like the tires were spinning and weren't really going anywhere. And then all of a sudden, I'm not like it's, you know, Vinny is is the end-all, be-all, but it's like when that first wave of guys gets there and Vinny gets called up and it's like that that first wave of moves, all of a sudden like a flip switch and the entire lineup starts hitting. It, it's really remarkable. If, if you look at the point where where Nick and, Nick and Bobby went up to Omaha uh, through those first 11 or so weeks of the season – I think they had accounted for it. I want to say it was close to 60% of the Naturals total runs in the, in the first half of the season. Plus um, obviously very talented players and a lot of deserving hype around them. Um, but once they went up to Omaha and I don't want to speak for any other teams in the double A central, uh, but I kind of got a sense that people didn't expect much out of the Naturals um, just because those two big bats are gone. Well, how the heck are you going to replace them? Well, I had seen Vinny hit in the Appalachian League. I was with the Minnesota's affiliate Elizabethan when he was in Burlington. So I had seen him hit before. I knew on paper th- this dude rakes. And, and the same thing with Jimmy Govern. Everywhere Jimmy Govern had gone, he did nothing but hit. So you, you feel good internally uh, moving forward, as difficult as it is to replace those guys. And that was around the time that Brewer Hicklin got hot, um, really over that last eight, nine weeks of the season. Um, and with those two big bats gone. And then eventually the third, um, well, how are you going to win games? Well, everyone else has to step up. Um, not that, that they were carrying the naturals offense on their back the first half of the season, but they were just responsible for so much of the production. Everyone else has to step up from day one. Vinny filled in Nick's shoes, did not skip a beat from what he had been doing. Jimmy Govern filled a great hole at third base and played incredible defense. Um, Brewer was really hitting the ball. Well, Felt like every other game, Clay Dungan was leading off the base hit or double or something like that. Um, and everyone came together, and it was really special to watch. Um, and they really, to a certain degree, slid under the radar until until the the playoff spot was was the Naturals because uh, Frisco had been in first place in the South the entire season. They literally spent every day of the twenty twenty one season in first place in their division. Um, they had some really good pitching at the start, and um, even Arkansas, once they got Julio Rodriguez, you're kind of thinking, man, these are going to be tough teams to beat. Um, but the Naturals really flew under the radar, played great team baseball. Uh, everyone stepped up, filled their role, did their part. Um, and to a certain degree, snuck in past Frisco and Arkansas. Um, 
And once they were in, again, there was, there was no stop in this team. I, um, there was no shame in quote unquote sneaking in either. No, absolutely. We did our job to get in. And then once we got in, what did we do? That's why, that's why the playoffs matter, right? Because the team that, you know, next year, nobody's going to talk about the team that won the league, right? They're going to talk about the team that, the team that won the playoffs. So that's, that's the exciting part about it is sneaking in is good enough because all you got to do is win a few more games and, and you're league champions. Yeah. That's exactly how the Royals got in 2014 too. And yeah. I know in 2015 they won it all, but that 2014 team was one of my favorite teams to watch of all time. Uh, just because of like you talk about like the way they get in and then going undefeated in the beginning. Uh, Nicholas, there's a guy I've really want, two guys I wanted to ask you about. Sure. That, uh, I've been wanting to ask you about for a while and this is, this tracks a little bit from the playoff situation, but I've, I've been wanting to ask you about them. Um, two of the unsung heroes on that Naturals team, in my opinion, Jeffrey Del Rosario, one of the youngest pitchers in the league, who didn't have maybe, if you look at it just on the surface, the best year that he could have had. But I thought he was outstanding a lot of the time, did a great job filling in innings. And even when he wasn't you know, throwing the bulk innings, but he was starting, he did a really good job. Of, of going out there and offering the team some kind of value, whether it was innings or strikeouts or whatever it was. And Nolan Watson, Nolan Watson, a, a first-round pick in 2015. Man, Nolan Watson has been through the gauntlet of baseball trials so far and comes out, his throwing harder than ever. He's relieving. He made some spot starts, doing whatever the team asks for him. I, I wanted to get your opinion on those two uh, for a while now because they had phenomenal – seasons in some regards like again maybe not in the era um but in some regards had phenomenal seasons um and and not that they carried the naturals to the playoffs by any means but in terms of giving innings where they're needed so the bullpen could be rested and healthy when it needed to be um i think it speaks volumes to what those two did all year no i I completely agree and i'm I'm glad you brought both of those up and i and i think you could those two especially you could take any piece of this naturals team out of the puzzle for a moment and it's going to be a lot tougher for this team to make the playoffs. Every every single arm had a had a role. Every bat had a role. And with those two especially, it's important to remember, Jeffrey didn't pitch at all in 2019. Nolan made one start, and then he was shut down for all of 2019. So these are two guys coming off two years out of action, essentially. Um, and they, they slowly progressed up, going from one and two innings to two and three, four to five innings. Um, and at the, at the end of the season, they were able to give the Naturals four or five innings consistently. Um, and they took really big strides forward. You forget sometimes that Jeffrey Del Rosario uh, just turned 22. He spent most of the season as one of the youngest pitchers in the league. Um, and the, the fun thing to see with him as the season got on was he was learning the game of baseball um, more than um, more than you can ask of him. Um, it, it's a it's a really special thing to watch watch the wheels start to turn in him and especially August, September down the stretch. He was putting together some really good starts where it looked just about impossible to hit him. The fastball velocity was creeping up as the season went on. And then Nolan Watson, um, maybe my MVP down the final two, two weeks of the season, because he put together three starts, two against Springfield in the final week of the regular season, uh, and then one in Wichita um, that cannot be overstated how important those are. Against Springfield, he threw eight and a third innings. Uh, only allowed a couple of earned runs, but more importantly for him, he didn't walk anyone. And that, that had kind of been an issue for him. Um, he had, he had been walking two, maybe three guys and out in, 
And then all of a sudden he's throwing a lot more strikes that final week of the season. And then he offers, it was four shutout innings of relief in game three and get, gets the win. So that's three win. And I know wins are, you can argue how much wins actually matters a stat, but when you look at the wins that he earned, uh, those were three fantastic outings. And without just one of those three outings, I don't know if the naturals are where they ended up. Um, so it was really fun to watch his development uh, and, again, see things finally starting to click. Uh, I mean, Nolan Watson has a, has a disgusting sinker. Um, and just to see the stuff get better um, and things click, improve as the season went on, it was really fun with those two. Vinny, if you had to give me your favorite thing about this championship team, and you, and you can do both teams since you were a big part of that Quad Cities team early on, what is your favorite thing that you saw about uh, either or or – or both championship teams as the season went on? Uh, well, I'll start with double A. It's going to be tough to answer Quad Cities just because I wasn't with them down the stretch. Um, and they had a – it's funny, the two teams had a completely different route to getting there, right? Quad Cities eases into the playoffs because they clinched probably earlier than 99% of the teams in the playoffs. And then double A team with us, we <laughs> get it on the last day. So – it's, it's funny because, you know, we're playing our best baseball as we get into the playoffs, right? They're kind of hitting this lull. Then they lose game one. They win game two. They lose game three. And then they win the last two. It's like it's two completely different ways of winning. But I'd say with the double-A team, there was a very concerted effort of um, playing 27 full outs, right? Even if you're losing when there's 26 outs, you still got one more to play with. And um, there were some older guys on the team, and they're not old by any means. They're just – they have a little bit more experience than I do. Um, you know, you're looking at Blake Perkins, you're looking at Brewer, you're looking at Suley, you're looking at Jason Guzman um, and Clay Dungan, who him and I got drafted in the same year. I mean, what that guy can bring to a clubhouse, right? You got Mabry's Valoria, who was really good behind the plate, Freddie Fermin, Tyler Cropley, who was able to fill in some spots there too. I mean, and then we had some older guys um, like Kevin Merrill, Austin Dennis, Brett Bewley, who were able to pr- – just provide support wherever we needed it in the field. They could play, you know, all three of them were Swiss army knives. So I think that, you know, that team was just a team that was just a revolving door of good at bats. It was just, you had to work to get through that nine. Um, Even if guys were striking out or whatever, they were still quality plate appearances where the pitcher had to work to get them. Um, And that's just, I mean, you know, that's hard to teach. And it's something that the Royals are pretty good at teaching. Um, and our manager, Scott Thorman, was really good at preaching that, you know, playing all 27, uh, making sure we were focused to win every night. And that was great. And then on the Quad Cities team, I mean, that group of guys is special. And I know that's the group that I've come up with. So, like, for the most part, that's who I played with in 19 and 20 at Instructs was that same group. And then at the beginning of this year, um, what I know is that group is really special. And obviously, I can't speak to them winning it exactly, but that, I mean, from the top down, from Chris Widger, the manager, um, that entire staff, that's a very special group. And there was a goal coming out of spring training, and that was to, you know, that was to come in and dominate that league and then win the playoffs. And that's what they were able to do. And I couldn't be more proud of that group of guys for because they went through a lot this year with injuries and things like that, like every team does. Um, but they were able to battle through. And it's not easy to be the best team in the league all year long and win the playoffs. So it was super exciting that that was able to happen. You mentioned Brewer Hicklin as a part of that team in Double A and, and the role he played. Um, this is now the third year in a row that Brewer Hicklin, the team that he started the year with, ended up winning its respective championship. So that 2017 draft class is, has really left its mark, and now you're seeing 
part of the 2018, 2019, and now even the 2020 draft class filled in down there in Quad Cities this year, uh, starting to leave its mark. Um, but you mentioned Brewer Hicklin, and I wanted to throw that note out there that everywhere he's gone, they won a championship. And I think that speaks to not just Brewer Hicklin, but some of the guys that are on that team and the leadership and the um, consistency that comes with that. So um, yeah, no, I really I, like Brewer. It's a, it's a really good point you made. There's one guy I forgot to mention, and I can't believe I forgot to mention him because he was my roommate, but Jimmy Govern, what that guy brings to a clubhouse. I mean, you can talk about him hitting at every level and his great defense at third, but with that guy, the energy and just what his attitude brings to a clubhouse is so meaningful in many different ways because it's going to get guys to relax just because of his sense of humor and how he can relate to people. I mean, that's, you know, if you're talking about what a glue guy is, that's what I think of when I think of a glue guy. And that really helps in a clubhouse, especially in a long season. There we go. So I want to go to the championship clinching moment for each of you guys. So Nick, the game was well, I think it was like seven to two or something like that going into the ninth. At what point did you kind of start thinking, when did the wheels start turning for what you're going to say when that third out's recorded? And then how do you, and I love outsick announcers just because I think it's an interesting thing. Like how do you balance getting your call out and not overtaking the moment? And like saying too much and not letting kind of the moment breathe. Like, how do you kind of balance those two things? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And uh, and that that Friday for me was was interesting. I mentioned on Twitter that I had technical difficulties uh, with the broadcasts. I'm unpacking my equipment uh, two hours before first pitch, and I realized that the power cable to my audio mixer is busted, um, and uh, so I don't have power to my mixer, which is essential for the broadcast. Um, so I hopped on one of those bird scooters. And I, I took a five-mile scooter ride down the street to Guitar Center um, to, to buy a new mixer. Um, ended up getting back 30 minutes before first pitch. Um, and the mixer didn't work for the first three innings. Um, so I was at no point during that game thinking about what am I going to say if and when the Naturals win. Um, there was absolutely zero thought of, um, of what to say, how to properly encapsulate the moment my only thought is i just hope we get through this game and i am able to record myself with that championship call um just because i've been having issues with the equipment and my computer working together um and so there was so much stress in my head i'm not even thinking about it so what i said kind of just was i mean in the middle of the ninth inning i'm kind of like i should i should figure out what to say um but that ninth inning kind of went by so quickly the the bottom half uh that was just the first thing that Came into my head, honestly. Um, but when I when I was in Australia this past year, I had the the chance to call the championship for the the Australian Baseball League, um, and I was kind of starting around the middle innings to formulate some some words, some sentences in my head. I just jotted down a couple of things in my notebook there. Um, and it's different when you're on radio, like I was with the Naturals, versus on video, like I was in Australia, because uh, if, if you're on video, I mean, say a few sentences, and they just let the pictures speak for themselves. Uh, which I probably would have done if it were at home and we're on MILB TV, but on the road when you're really audio only, um, you're trying to paint the picture. I mean, you know, players coming out of the dugout, out of the bullpen, um, and then uh, kind of difficult on the road when all the fan, home home fans are kind of disappointed and there may be a, a few boos in the background. And it's maybe not the best uh, background noise to let take the moment, um, but uh, just I was kind of uh, 
spitballing to a certain degree, just uh, freestyling or whatever came to my head and hoping when I listened back, it sounded all right. I have it pulled up. I'm going to try to play it really quick, your call real quick. It's like a 30-second call-ish here. I'm going to see if my computer will pick it up. If, you, if y'all can't hear it, just tell me you can't hear it. We'll, we'll edit this out. But I'm going to try to play it real quick so everybody listening to the podcast can try to hear your final call. Cross the one-two. Swing and a miss, strike three. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals, your 2021 AA Central Champions. They come spilling out of the dugout, pouring out of the bullpen in right field. Back on top for the first time since 2010. The second league championship for Northwest Arkansas. You were right. I didn't notice that the first time. They really were booing, like, like kind of loud. Like, I, I'm a little surprised that it was boos coming. Like, what would you expect? You're down 2-0. You're getting your tail kicked in game three, and really that's what we got. Wichita is, is boos for the Naturals. That's um, that's interesting. But that call is outstanding, even, even through the boos. No, I didn't notice the booze until going back uh, and listening to it. I think there's resentment isn't the right word, but there was a little little bit of animosity from the the Wichita fans because the Naturals did play in Wichita for a long time before they moved to Northwest Arkansas. Um, so uh, it's not widespread, but among the diehard fans, there may be a little perception of, oh, well, these are the guys who took our team. Um, and so for some of those diehard Wichita baseball fans, they wanted nothing more than for the wind surge to stomp all over the Naturals. Um, but I do want to give credit to the folks in Wichita because, uh, and uh, as I'm sure Vinny would say, that was a fantastic crowd. Uh, they packed close to 6,000 folks in the stands uh, for that, that game on Friday. Um, and minor league playoff games usually don't draw that well. Um, so the fact that they were to bring those many, that many fans in uh, it created a really good atmosphere uh, early on. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't realize the booze had happened until, until I went back and listened to it. All right, so Vinny, were you were you playing first base this game, or were you, were you DH? I can't remember off the top of my head what the lineup looked like. I played first base. Okay, so you're on the field, strike three. Where, like, do you remember any of that moment, or did you just kind of like black out and just start running toward the mound? So the way that inning went is we brought in our closer, Jose Nicholas. Will you tell me how to say Quas. his name? I don't, I don't want to butcher it. Jose Quas. Quas. Quas comes in the game. At that point, in my head, it's game over. Um, we're up by four. He's been the best closer that I've seen over the past year. I mean, he comes in the game, game's over. Um, they get a broken bat hit where I don't even see the ball because all I see is the barrel of the bat flying in the air and I don't see the ball. It ends up landing in short right field, just a blooper. I'm like, wow, well, they're not going to make this easy on us. And then next batter hits a chopper right to him. And the point I knew the game was over. All he did, picks up the ball, throws it the second, Clay throws it the first, two outs. So at this point, you know, I'm feeling pretty confident we're going to win. So I look at Clay and I say, hey, when this happens, you might want to take your hat off because your hat's going to get ruined. Because um, my plan was there's probably going to be a ground ball. I was going to put the ball in my back pocket and give it to our manager after the game, but it ended up being a strikeout. So when that happens, I ended up being the first one to our pitcher, which was awesome. Um I think that could be debated. I think one person got out there right at the same time as me. And then as soon as we get there, we all start jumping around. And my immediate thought is, where's Jimmy? Right. I mean, we've been on this journey together this whole year. We've kind of traveled together a little bit. And I thought that would be a really cool moment for us to have. And then we found each other and it was just awesome. We gave a big, big bear hug to each other. And it was like, we did it. Like we came to this team and we won. And there was never a blackout moment just because it was just like at that time I expected it. Um, 
So it was something I had prepared for of what we were going to do when we win. Not saying that I was, you know, just the cockiest guy in the room thinking we were going to win, but I was really confident in the team that we had. And we went down early. Nobody on the team cared. Brewer hits a grand slam and everybody's just, we're going to do this thing. So it was something that I had prepared for and it was awesome to finally, you know, see it achieved. And a good, well-deserved shout out to Jose Quas too, uh, because that, that's another guy who completely flew under the radar uh, outside of this team uh, for the better part of the last half of the season. That dude was unhittable. Uh, first couple of outings were rough. And then I think he's, he switched which side of the rubber he pitched from. You couldn't hit him. He, he had like a 13-inning scoreless streak at one point. Anytime he came into the game, I mean, you, you knew it was over. He was that good all season long. This has been so awesome to kind of reminisce on the, this season, and it's been so cool to to see this club kind of go from, like we talked about, like the kind of the wheels spinning, not going anywhere, and then just boom, and then to, to win a championship and and to continue, you know, the Royals, you know, having success at the minor league level and winning championships, uh, it, it does mean something to this organization. And Vinny, congratulations. You're getting two rings, so that's pretty cool. I'm getting two rings. And, but I swear, Joel, if you ask me if there's a pitcher that I want to face or if there's a moment I would want to go back to in baseball history, I will not answer the question on this night. I will not do it. Fair enough. So that question's going to Nick. If you could go back and watch one moment in baseball history, what would it be? Why um, you're there in person. Well, as, a, as growing up as an Oakland A's fan, I'm not going to say the 2014 wild card game because that still haunts <laughs> my uh, memories to a, to a certain degree. Um, 1980, again, growing up an A's fan, 1989 World Series uh, would have been pretty cool to experience. Um, yeah, that's probably – or, or uh, 2001 World Series, Game 7. I went to Arizona State. Um, I had Diamondback season tickets for a few years, um, and so I, I, got, I got to really understand how, how important that moment was uh, to that city and that fan base. Um, so that would be a cool one to go back in. That's that, that's a really good one. It's a line drive in the scorebook for Luis Gonzalez. Exactly. All right. All right. So Vinny, here's your question. What's your go-to karaoke song? Um, my, whew. well, I saw on Twitter one time, somebody did this song where you just, it's one word. It's the tequila song. I think that would be a hilarious song to do for karaoke just because that video cracks me up every time I see it. Ooh, I think I'm going to have to go with Dancing in the Moonlight for karaoke. Um, that's just a song that really hits my vocal cords well, and I'm able to just – I'm really able to dominate that song, so I just appreciate that a lot. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, guys, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Vinny, I know you're going to be back on at some point. Like, it just I, – I just know it's going to happen. But, Nick, hopefully we'll, we'd love to have you back on again here soon. Yes, uh, have a great off season, guys. Enjoy it. And congratulations. This is not a full off season, Joel. Not a full off season. Oh, he's going down to Republica Dominicana. It's going to be, yeah, that's going to be fun. Playing in three or in a month now. I'll be back in a month. All right. Well, we're going to have you on to talk about playing down for Tigres. Like we well, have maybe to. I'll just do it in Spanish by that point. Maybe I'll just try to learn a bunch of Spanish and then we can just, I'll take it over from there. There we go, man. All right. Thank you so much, guys. This has been awesome. Thank you. And we're now joined by two members of the uh, the High A Central champion uh, Quad Cities River Bandits. Their season finished on a Sunday night with a Game Five win over Cedar Rapids. Uh, big couple of big parts of that team: uh, Michael Massey and uh, now two-time guest Will Klein uh, joining us to talk about the season. What's up, guys? How you guys doing? Appreciate us. Uh, appreciate you having us on. Uh, thanks for taking the time for Mike and me. 
Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate you guys coming on. Mike, I, I got to ask you first. I um, ran some video earlier in the year. I think it was your first home run that you hit all spring. It was a bomb that you hit. I think you hit it out of the stadium. Um, it wasn't in Quad Cities. I can't remember where you guys were, but you hit it out of the stadium onto a street that was out behind right field wherever you all were at. And I said something about um, when, when Michael Massey elevates the baseball, like things are going to be a lot of fun. And then I was reading – in an article, I don't remember who wrote it. It seems like it was probably Alec Lewis of The Athletic, but I can't really remember for sure who wrote it about some work you did this past offseason of, of working on getting the ball in the air a little bit that obviously paid huge dividends for you down the stretch and, and, and all year really in the Quad Cities. Um, you've always hit the ball well. You mentioned that staying healthy was a big thing for you in college. You come to pro ball, you've been healthy, you've been hitting the ball really well. What has been the big adjustment for you of both getting the ball in the air, but also just overall offensively that's led to you having a like a massive breakout season there and, and a major part of that Quad Cities lineup? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I honestly think a lot of it goes to the hitting department in Kansas City. Um, you know, in college, I really hit with my hands. Yeah, no, so, I mean, I think it's uh, – it goes back to just in college, I hit with my hands a lot and, and always tried to stay gap to gap and line drives. And then, um, you know, last fall uh, in Kansas City and in Arizona, um, we just we, we started seeing a different caliber pitching. You know, you go out there and you're seeing Daniel Lynch and, and Asa Lacey and Jackson Kowar and, uh, you know, they're making stuff move in, in ways that you've never seen before. So, so trying to manipulate the bat uh, with your hands just wasn't really working. And, uh, you know, I remember Drew and Zumi kind of pulling me aside and said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna tweak a few things, get you to, to work with your uh, your lower half a little bit more, work with your core, and and uh, kind of leave your hands out of it." And so I, I really feel like that helped me drive the ball a lot better. I stopped trying to manipulate the bat up top um, and just kind of started sequencing from the ground up and and using my lower half and my legs. And um, you know, I, I think it's just the power came from that, the elevation came from that, and. Um, so, you know, like I said, I, I think a lot of credit goes to, to Drew and Zumi and Keone for that. I noticed in the middle of the season when they promoted Vinny to double A, um, guys started pitching you a little different. And I didn't, you know, as much as I watch you guys play, I don't chart every at bat and every pitch you guys see, but it felt like guys started pitching you a little bit differently. And you went on a stretch there from the middle of July, middle of August, where you went a month out of home run. And then you turned it back on at the end of the season, absolutely started destroying the ball again. Did you notice something specific in the way guys were attacking you? Maybe it was not having Vinny um, hitting behind you anymore. Maybe it had nothing to do with that. And it was just kind of a coincidence in timing, but did you notice anything specific and, and, and what kind of adjustment you had to make to get back to driving the ball out of the yard? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a great point. Um, I mean, all, all year in quad cities, one through nine, we had, we had an unbelievable lineup. Every guy could swing it and, um, but I mean, anytime Vinny Pasquantino is in your lineup, um, I mean, that's going to be the guy they focus on. And so, you know, when Vinny was there, I, I felt like, especially he was hitting behind me and, um, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to walk anybody to get to Vinny. Um, so, you know, I was getting some good pitches to hit and, um, you know, I think in that stretch, I think it was just, you know, part of it was just the game. And, and, you know, I think anytime you go on a hot streak, other teams are going to know about it. They're going to approach it a little bit different. They're going to kind of point you out in the lineup and say, Hey, we need to, we need to keep an eye on this or that. And, and part of it's just the game. And then, um, you know, making that adjustment, it's just, it's such a game of adjustments. And, 
um, you know, I remember at the beginning of the season, I was kind of struggling and, and scuffling a little bit. And um, I just had, I needed some time. I needed to figure it out. I made the adjustment. Um, and so when Vinny left, I felt like, you know, I just, I started getting a little bit more 2-0 change-ups, 0-0 breaking balls. Guys are trying to get me to chase a little bit more, not really giving in on fastballs. Out like, man, all right, I need to stop chasing. I need to stop, uh, you know, trying to do too much with this and just kind of take what they give me. And, um, you know, like he kind of went through that learning curve and, and was able to figure it out toward the end of the year. Um, so, I mean, again, it's just, it's just every, every year, you know, no two teams are alike. Teams pitch you differently. And, um, you know, I'm sure there'll be another adjustment I'm going to have to make next year if I'm, uh, if I'm able to move up. And, um, you know, I've noticed throughout my career, I think, I think the guys that are really good are able to figure out those adjustments quicker and quicker each year. So this year it took me three weeks to figure it out. Hopefully next year it takes me two, um, you know, and hopefully you can just kind of get quicker at making those adjustments. Speaking of, uh, you know, making adjustments, well, it seemed like early on in the season, um, struggling to keep the ball in the zone consistently. There were times when striking, striking out the world and times when every strikeout came with a walk, it seemed like. And then down the stretch, it just seemed like every guy that stepped up to the plate, there was at least a 50% chance they were striking out. And you really cut down on the walks. And it seemed like the more that your balls – that is going to sound awesome on the podcast tomorrow. The more that – when you threw the ball in the strike zone – the less people actually hit it. It seemed like the, you know, and that's kind of counterintuitive. Like the more balls you throw in the strike zone, the more you could potentially get hit. It didn't seem to be that way for you. The more strikes you threw, the better you were all year. Um, is there any adjustments you made in the middle of the season? Because down the stretch, I mean, there wasn't a bullpen in my, in all of minor league baseball that was effective as you guys had all year between you and Webby getting Caden Monk there at the end of the year. Um, you guys had three or four guys you could go to at any time to just shut a game down. Um, but what kind of adjustments you make throughout the year? And I mean, that led to you just absolutely dominating, um, on the mound there down the stretch. Uh, I, I made a few, uh, Luber talked to me, I think it was after the, uh, uh, the Wisconsin, uh, Timber Ellers game. Uh, and like the next day he comes up to me, I was like, Hey, uh, out of the out of the lineup, you're kind of rushing yourself. Uh, same thing with the stretch. Like I wasn't I wasn't staying back. I was like kind of my, I was just falling down the mound, and I wasn't staying back and like keeping my whole body like on time. And uh, we kind of just worked with that out of the lineup uh, like the next week or so, and that kind of like made a little jump in progress. Still walking a lot of guys, uh, but then what really helped was uh, working on my front arm. I kind of like. Uh, threw it up there like I just kind of stick it up and then kind of come straight over the top uh, but I was going like a little too a little too up and I was kind of like pulling off uh, glove side a little bit uh, so it kind of made my delivery a little inconsistent and so that led to like every other pitch uh, I would go back to that and then I'd figure it out and then I'd go back to that but we worked on keeping it a little a little lower and keeping my head like straight through the glove instead of falling off to the side and so that helped me really stay uh, more up and down versus missing uh, east to west. Um, and also, yeah, like you said, uh, trusting yourself in the zone. I, I think I uh, what helped there was starting to throw a lot more uh, breaking balls and like 1-1 one, one counts, 1-0 one, oh counts, because if they're sitting like that 1-1, one, 1-0 one, uh, one, oh heater, it makes it a lot easier to hit. And then and like in your own head, you're thinking, well, shoot, if I, they're sitting fastball and I'm throwing a fastball here, like can't make them hit it. And you try to make it too good of a pitch, and then you end up like trying to be perfect, missed by a little bit you're in a really bad situation. So just trying to throw off the hitters a little bit, working, uh, breaking balls in a little 
a little bit of more backwards counts than I was at the start of the year. And then just getting get more confidence on the mountain helps. I know Michael uh, understands that one. You guys both yeah. talked about adjustments you made that allowed you to dominate the level for a long time. You guys had, in the middle of the year, some of your better players get called up. Um, Pasquantino goes up. Angel Zerpa goes up. Um, Jimmy Govern goes. And it just seems like every time a player would leave, you guys would backfill it with a Michael Garcia or an A.J. Block or a Kale Emshoff. And it's like the reinforcements kept coming. What about your team allowed you, even with all the, all the roster movement that goes on, um, Michael, you can go ahead and go first, but what about your team allowed you guys to gel and just keep winning throughout the year? Because, again, the roster turned over quite a bit for you guys. Nick Lofton missed time with an injury. What allowed you guys to just keep winning and just keep uh, – you guys destroyed the entire league all year, it seemed like. Yeah, I think, I think that's a uh, – that, I think that was just such a culture thing for us. You know, I, I think uh, a lot of times in pro ball, um, not that I have that much experience in it, but just from guys that I know that I've talked to from other organizations, I think at times it could turn into a little bit of a selfish game in, in the sense of, hey, guys are just trying to put up numbers, trying to move to the next level. Um, and to be honest with you, there was not a lot of that in, in quad cities. Um, and Pasquantino was a huge part of that. I mean, that guy, you want to talk about a team leader and a guy, a great guy in the clubhouse. And, um, it was just a lot of selfless guys and a lot of guys that would do anything, to help the team win. And, and, uh, you know, like you mentioned, it was just kind of next man up mentality. You lose one guy, one guy fills it in and, and you don't miss a beat. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't even say it was a talent thing. I mean, it was, it was really, it almost felt like a college atmosphere all year. You know, when you're on a team, you're playing for a college world series and, and uh, I, I get the sense that it's unlikely in a lot of other places that um, a championship means as much as it did to, to the guys in that clubhouse. Um, and, and so I, I just, I think the team culture, I think the coaching staff, you know, Widger and Rochi and, and having Luber and a guy like Mike Jersley in there, who's been to a world series before with the Royals and, um, I just I think having those guys in the locker room was was huge in that. The Royals obviously preach that. I mean, they preach it publicly in their media appearances. I know for a fact they they talk to you guys about it. How much of that? Because you say you get the impression that other other clubs don't necessarily run it that way, where winning is the most important thing. How much of that do you think is taught, and how much of that do you think is a concerted effort to bring in guys who are already wired that way? Because Obviously, like you talked about with Vinny, um, it, do, it doesn't take long to figure out that that guy is all about winning. Um, so obviously there's a mix of bringing in guys who are already wired that way. But how much like – and I, I hate to say the, like practicing winning, but the Royals admitted like when they went out and got James Shields in 2013 and brought him to Kansas City, that part of his role was teaching the team to win and teaching the team how to handle it when you lose. So how much of that is taught versus how much of that do you think is just – natural in, in, in the lineup. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it goes both ways. I think there's guys like Vinny that it's just so natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there's, there's other guys that maybe don't come in like that, but what having Vinny and, and guys like that already in the organization, um, you just kind of, you fall in line and you follow suit. And like you said, you learn to win. And I, I think that's a, it's a very under, it's overlooked, I think, in a lot of, uh, you know, everyone likes to look at speed and how hard you throw and how far can you hit the ball. And, and the reality is, um, 
you know, like last night in game five or in game four when Kleiner came in and shut the door, like, yeah, I mean, Kleiner's still in 100. But I mean, the, the intensity and the tenacity that he had in that game is, is that over that Trump stuff any day of the week. Um, and, and guys that are out there with a will to win for their teammates. I mean, that Trump's uh, whether you throw a hundred or whether you can hit a ball 500 feet. And, and so I think, um, you know, the minor leagues is about developing your skills. It's about getting the bats, it's about getting innings pitched and getting ready to, to play in the big leagues, but it's also about playing in pressure moments. You know, the way the game's wired today, you're going to have AL wild card games or it's a one game playoff. You're going to have game five, game sevens. And so being able to, to get that experience in the minor leagues and, and actually playing for something, um, I think is, is huge for, for every one of us. Well, I was going to ask you about that outing next. Um, seemed like all year you guys just Rick rolled through everybody you played. And then in the playoffs, you get down one games to two. And for the first time, truly all year, you guys are behind the eight ball. You tie it up game in game four there, but it wasn't without you coming in and doing a little heroics there with the bases loaded. Did it feel at all like uh, – and and I'm going to be honest, I haven't gone back and looked at your guys' um, seasons that you had at Eastern Illinois, but when was the last time you stepped into a game when the champion a championship of some kind was on the line and it was your job to come in and shut it down? And, and, and how do you think that pressure then – and maybe it's been a while – kind of, I don't know, prepares you for the next level and prepares you for that next moment at the next level because, again – we talk about all the time um, as, as members of the media, so to speak, that the Royals putting a, a premium on winning matters. Tell us about how that matters, because maybe it's been a while for you since, man, the, the, a real championship atmosphere, <clears throat> excuse me, when you step on the mound. Yeah, that's a, that, that'd be the first time I was ever in a situation like that. Uh, like any sort of playoffs, like never really had that sort of success at like high school or college, but off the bat after at, as soon as game one started, I was like, man, this feels like just high, uh, high school sectionals uh, back in the day, like that kind of atmosphere, that kind of vibe. Like, like it felt like we were just out there having fun playing baseball, like trying to go win a ring and stuff. And it felt like we were like all together, like grew up together, like been together for 120 some games. And it felt like we, like we all had each other's backs, like Michael was saying, uh, and like, that's kind of how you build that culture. Um, but yeah, uh, the premium on winning, uh, it's tough because you have guys, like you were saying, that have all the tools and they go up there just trying to make their stats look better or, like, hit a home run or, like, not doing what needs to be done in the situations. Like, they had bases loaded and they uh, – game four and game five and they didn't get anyone in. And if you look at that, like, you look at what our guys did with runners on when they needed to. They were just putting together the ABs, like, Michael's double to get in. Uh, uh, Hancock in game four or Porter just stepping up to the plate knowing what needed to be done uh, and there too and guys just like knew their jobs knew what they had to do to win the game versus like oh man a home run would look really cool my stats here or I need to go through 100 I don't really care where it's going which is something I kind of had to learn throughout the way too but um, I think we just had more uh, want to win will to win uh, whether it's through our culture, our coaches, uh, what the Royals preach to us are just all kind of coming together. Uh, but that, that kind of pushed us over the edge there uh, versus those guys. So looking back on the season a little bit, we can get into game, the end of game four and game five here in a minute, but you guys obviously ran through the league this year. You had the best record in the league by, oh, by 11 games total. 
but was there, were there any moments that I know a lot of, you know, winning and knowing how to win is kind of being where your feet are, but were there ever points during the year where you won a game or there was a big moment, you just kind of had that feeling of like, we're going to be there at the end and we're going to be holding up a trophy. Was there any of that, that sense of, you know, you win this game, but you just kind of have that sense that we're going to be there at the end and have a chance to win a championship. Uh, I honestly, I, I think as soon I think it happened in spring training. Um, you know, like I, I just think we, we kind of played together. We called ourselves the spring training bandits. Um, and we just, again, it, 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 we were so close going all the way back to 2019 for most of the guys and then getting guys at a Kleiner in 2020 and, and then putting it together in spring training. Um, I think everybody knew when, when we kind of saw the rosters and who was going to be here. Um, I think we knew that we were going to be, be a pretty good team and, and have a pretty good chance to, to do something special. So um, I, like, I think that goes all the way back to spring training. I, you know, I know we started out, I think we lost the first two games of the season. If I can remember that going <laughs> back. Yep. Um, but I mean, I, I, we were, we were kicking teams butts and in, in spring training and freaking run ruling them. You know, we run ruled the Padres and the Dodgers. And I, I think everyone knew uh, what kind of team this is going to be back then. You, yeah, I, I, uh, I was just going to say there's, there's one for me. Uh, and I don't know if I'd ever seen it done before or have heard of it being done before, but we would put up 12 runs in the first inning of a game. And I was like, Oh my God, no one can, no one can stop our hitters. Like, we go up there, keep the other game with like four or five runs, and our hitters are going to go put up 10, 12 every game. And it was just ridiculous. We mentioned that at the beginning of the season, where coming out of spring training, and, and rightfully so, guys like um, Melendez Prado, Bobby, Opa, Double A, were getting a lot of the attention. And Joel and I, the first podcast we recorded all spring, said, I, I don't know about you guys it's talking to the listeners. It's like, but I'm looking at this Quad Cities lineup. I'm like, these guys are going to tear stuff up. Like, I, I get it. The Some of the names a lot of fans are focused on are at double A. But this this high A lineup is deep. And, and Vinny was just talking about it a little bit as well. You guys had a crazy good mix of young talent, like Michael Garcia coming up from low A, of guys who aren't necessarily that young, but are some in some of their first experience in pro ball, like Nick Lofton and Tucker Bradley, um, some guys who, and Will yourself, some guys like Michael, you were in the Oregon 2019 and 2020, but there is no 2020 season. This was your first go at pro at full season ball. And then you had guys like Logan Porter and William Hancock who have been around for a little bit longer. I mean, you guys had a crazy mix of, of guys on that roster that really filled out the depth of it. And it didn't seem like there was a hole in the lineup. Like you said, Will, you scored 12 runs in an inning. I mean, it seemed like, Obviously, there were times when that seemed like it was possible more than once. Like it, it, like it was possible you guys could have scored runs all day, every day. Um, and, and you guys really did do that throughout the year, which is why I think it was watching you guys get down one, two in the, in the playoffs there. It's kind of like, man, like I don't really know that they've ever been here. But at the same time, it's like there's, there's no doubt of, of what you guys were capable of. And then obviously there at the end of the season um, – what did you guys win? Five, six, nothing, seven, nothing there by the time that game was over. So um, it, was, it was really fun to watch. And I think a lot of, of the more casual Royals fans who maybe tuned into minor league baseball for like, again, for the minor, for MLB pipelines, top 100 or whatever. But I think you guys brought to life what like minor league baseball is all about, because I think the, the whole roster construction was perfect for that. 
And truly, I think getting to watch you guys probably brought some fans from being casual fans to being maybe more invested in minor league baseball because you guys talked about the culture, the players on the team. That was one of the most, that was some of the most fun I've had watching a single team all season was, was watching you guys this year. So, I mean, it was obviously a very good season for you guys finished, I think what, 11 or 12 games in, in first place, go on win the championship. But um, I was excited to watch you guys again next year too. So we talked to Vinny, Vinny's going to go on and play, in the Dominican um, and, and really quick. And then I, I know Joel's got a question for you, but are either of you planning on playing fall ball at all? Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm back home and just going to, like I said, you know, get, get, uh, get ready for next spring training, you know, make sure I'm, I'm hitting my weights and, and eating right and putting the bat and the ball down for a little bit and, um, you know, getting, getting ready to go uh, next spring training, be able to play a hundred and, I think the schedule's up to 138 games again. So uh, kind of being able to endure those last, uh, last 20, 25 games here. So uh, just looking forward to spring training. Yeah. I, uh, I'm not going anywhere like uh, where he's going or doing anything, but we're, we got a few guys going to Arizona to, you know, get some uh, workouts in for a few, few more weeks and then shutting it down. Like Michael said, and getting ready for uh, next year's spring training and stuff, preparing for 20 extra games, which Seems like if we played three more weeks this year, we'd we'd all be pretty gassed. But um, yeah, just just looking forward to getting down to AZ and then uh, getting out of the next year's spring training. So we'll kind of backtrack a little bit back to Game Four. Game's tied. Logan Porter comes up, hits the homer. Like, what's the like your guys' kind of first reaction to to seeing that walk off homer? Backs against the wall, take you to a Game Five. <laughs> there's no way we're losing game five. That was the first thing I, you know, that, and honestly, I, I think everybody, it was kind of funny. So like game three or game four in the clubhouse before the game, I remember I was sitting in there and I was talking with Porter and John Rave and, and some other guys. And it was just like a consensus, like we're not losing, like, who are we kidding? Like, we're not losing this thing. Um, and it, it was just, it's just kind of funny how like we talk about that culture and just that, that will to win and that attitude of winning. Um, I think everyone knew, you know, it was going to be, I mean, we didn't know if we're going to win by 10 or win by a walk-off home run, but I think everyone knew we were going to pull that one out. Um, And then when, when Poe stepped up there after Kleiner did a heck of a job of felt like the entire four four innings he threw, what did you do, Klein, four? Uh, Two and two thirds. I'll take four though. Felt like four. Uh, Yeah. Every pitch (laughs) freaking an hour. Um, Okay. Not, not a shot at you. I'm just saying it's a playoff game, all right, playoff atmosphere. Um, but, yeah, I mean, after those guys stepped up and then Poe hit that ball, I think we were all out there like there's no way we're losing this after after those two guys stepped up the way they did. Um, you know, if you have any sort of competitive bone in your body, you know you want to go out there for those guys and, and give it all you got for game five. So I, I felt pretty confident uh, going into game five, and I know a lot of the other guys did too. Yeah, I gotta agree with you there, uh, especially with the way he did it. Like, I don't think there's any way uh, after a walk off home run after the kind of game that had just happened that they were gonna come out and put up a fight. Um, we kind of shut him down on the uh, pitching side and shut him down on the hitting side, uh, just taking their starter out like right away. Like, I think there was just kind of the vibe that hey, we're gonna go, we're gonna completely blow him out here, and we're gonna make it look like we should have won this in three games. Well, and, and I also think to add on to to that. Um, 
you know, one thing that I think hit them was like, that was, you know, Poe hit the walk-off, which was huge, but that was their guy. Yeah. I mean, Featherstone has been their dude all year out of the pen. He comes in and he kind of, he's their client. He shuts it down. So, uh, you know, no one giving us that confidence. Like, man, this guy, we can get to this guy in game five. And if he comes in, like, I think that was, uh, that was also big. There's a big confidence booster for us and a big blow to them, I think. I think watching Nate Webb close out game five was like a perfect embodiment of like really the, the playoff series in general is you guys got that lead and Webb comes in and there was, I I don't know the camera and I know you guys don't run this. I don't, I'm not offending you guys, but the camera angle for your guys' minor league streams is horrific. If you're trying to like (laughs) pitchers, I know Will and I talked about that earlier in the year. Like if I'm trying to like evaluate anything you guys are doing on the mound, it's impossible while you guys are at home. So, but it looked to me from that angle that Webb was getting squeezed a little bit. And I don't know if the umpire was like trying not to take the game into his own hands by, by expanding the zone. And so he's just being overly cautious in that moment, but it looked like Webb as he was getting squeezed, just said, screw it. Like here it comes. I'm going to throw this baseball as hard as I can freaking throw it. And you, and you better figure out how to hit it. And I think it was like their five or six hole that comes up. He puts a fat web, puts a fastball in the black and Kyle goes, and there's another fastball in the triple digits by Webb, and he threw two sliders in the dirt that this uh, the kid waved at, didn't never really came close to. But it was it was so much fun to watch Webby close that thing out because just all the energy and all the effort he was putting into it, you could tell his attitude was both okay, Blue, you've squeezed me a few times here. Screw you, screw whoever's in the box, and I, season's almost over. Like I've got three, four more pitches I got to throw. And I can go home for the offseason. It was fun to watch. And again, like I said, it was kind of a, like a perfect embodiment of how your guys' season went of just overpowering and dominating a season as much as you can. So um, a lot of fun to watch. But again, just a, just a cool way to close it out. So Nate Webb closes out the game. Game's over. You guys are high A central champions. Take us through, you know, what's going on in your head at that moment. It's, that's obviously a, a very special thing for at any point in your professional career. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was, uh, it was, it was so much fun for me and I, I know it was fun for a lot of guys, but kind of going back to uh, what Kleiner was talking about, like I haven't played in a championship game when dogpiled on a baseball field. I don't think I've ever dogpiled on a baseball field in my life, maybe once. Um, but I mean, it's been, it's been so long. I never, you know, never won a state championship in high school, never, uh, won a Big Ten championship in college. Never went to Omaha uh, in Burlington two years ago. We lost in Game Three, um, so just kind of like a sense of relief and and uh, honestly, just fun. Just just really enjoyed like celebrating and, and uh, you know, it's not every year that you get to do that on the last game. Most years, the last game of the season, you're you're putting your head down, you're going back in the tunnel, and you're you're not usually in a good mood. So anytime you can end a season where you're you're jumping around on a field and, and smiling and having fun with your teammates. Um, you know, I, I think we all know what the other way feels like. So um, just a lot of fun. Yeah. Kind of the same on, on my end. Uh, I think it was just, it was just a sense of relief uh, for like all for me and just for all the guys uh, that have been here the full season or just half the season, or even like the last few weeks that, man, we, we deserve to win this. And it's like, finally, like, okay, we actually did it. Like it just kind of put a cap on the, on the season we had had. Uh, it was just, 
I mean, I've never seen a group of guys that are more excited to win a baseball game than I did uh, on Sunday. And it was just, it was just so, so awesome uh, seeing just everyone's hard work come together uh, through 123 games that we've played that it just, it was just the best moment of my career so far. All right, so I got a couple of fun questions for each of you guys, and we'll get you out of here. Thank you so much for your time today. It was, I know you guys are just joining your offseason, and I, I appreciate, appreciate you guys taking the time. So, Will, you throw baseballs very hard. What's it like when you, like, just hit tri- triple digits? How often do you do you velo check? <laughs> Am I allowed to answer that, Mike? Oh, gee, uh, I see you all the time. I'm on a second base. I know when you're looking. Yeah, I mean, I don't got to. I don't got to worry about fielding ball when you're on the mound. They're gonna strike out anyway. This is one you myself occupied. No, well, you can taste yourself a little bit here. You can, you can, you can admit it. It's fine. Yeah, um, you know, when there's like two strikes and I gear up and I try to get a little extra, you know, I'll I'll turn around and take a quick peek. But no, there's just our radar gun was always like a pitch behind, so you just never knew which one you're getting. Uh, so that that one was that was a little tough to check with that, but uh. It wasn't not often. I'd say I'll say that. And then Michael. So the, the stadium backdrop that you guys played in in Quad Cities is really cool. And obviously, you're a left-handed hitter. Pull sides to the Mississippi River. How cool is it to say you could hit a ball into the into that river? I mean, I'll tell you what. We had a thing at the beginning of the year when you were struggling. It, the way to get yourself back on track was just think river. You just got to think river and Tucker Bradley, Eric Cole actually made a song. I don't know. I don't know if you heard about it, Klein, but I think it was from Disney or something like that. And he I've never heard of this. He made like a rhyme about hitting the ball into the river. Uh, but I tell you what, if you didn't hit one into the river, it wasn't from a lack of effort. Uh, I know all year there were some guys trying to trying to get one. It was it was a ways out there. Uh, you had to hit one pretty good to get out there. I think Stupinski went dead center. Oh, yeah. I think Stoop went dead center. He might have been the only one that there was video proof of the ball going in the water. Pretty sure Suli uh, went opposite field into the river. Uh, yeah, I sh- yeah. Suli could break his bat. And- <laughs> you can get Suli a T-ball bat and he can hit one into the river. What that was it like beast. watching him take BP? Unbelievable. I mean, you just didn't even – you didn't even have to know – like some, there'd be times like BP, you're on the outfield and, and you're just kind of shagging. You're not really paying attention to who's hitting. Like you could just hear when Sully was hitting. You didn't even have to. And and again, that's on a team with with a lot of really good hitters and guys with good power. You could tell the difference when he's up there. Um, but yeah, I mean, he can he can swing it. There were some balls he was hitting down the stretch for Northwest Arkansas where he was like swinging. It looked like maybe fifty percent. He was going like four, like halfway up the berm and right center. It, his power is just dumb. It, yeah, it's not even I – remember, I remember I was sitting – I don't know who it was. It was someone from another team. I was having breakfast with. I can't remember. But they were like, God, man. Like, they saw the video of Suli taking one up onto the berm and, and double A. And they're like, man, the double A balls are juiced. I'm like, no, no, they're not. You just don't – you don't know that guy. <laughs> all right. So, Michael, this is the last question we ask all of our guests. At least they come on the first time. I got to change it up every time. But – if you could go back and watch one moment live in baseball history, you're there. What are you picking? Oh, my gosh. I'm picking the Mike Jersley third base coach sending <laughs> Lorenzo Kane on the Bautista play. Oh, that's a good one. That's yeah, really I know. I, I didn't even know this question was coming and that popped in my head first. I gave Jersh so much crap about that, about how Kane just went on his own. 
and Jersh take likes to take credit. He doesn't he doesn't like to take credit for it. I make fun of him and 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 give him a hard time about it. But um, no, I mean I, I to go on top of that. I mean having Mike Jersley in the in the clubhouse this year was um, was unbelievable. He's an unbelievable mentor. He's a great coach. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd like to see him get out of the way of a foul ball down the down the third baseline. So what, see if he's got anything left. So one of my favorite stories, and it's actually the reason why my wife loves Gerard Dyson, is because Jersh like was just standing there. So it was the first Royals game I took my wife to. We were dating at the time in college, and like the Royals are getting their ass kicked by the Indians in like a day game. It's like a mid midweek day game. It's like 110 outside. And Dyson is on first base, ball gets ripped down the right field line, and he's just he's going. And Jersh is telling him to hold up, and Dyson just ignored it and just kept running. And sc- eventually scored. My wife goes, I love that guy. He's awesome. And so Gerard Dyson's been a great player since. So if Jersh, if, Jer- <laughs> if he actually listened to Jersh, I don't know if uh, that would have actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He's, I, I would, uh, I mean, there were some times this year where he'd go coach first base, and I'd kind of give him some shit about trying to. I'd be like, hey, Jersh, I'm trying to yank one. I'm going in the river, but if I miss right, I'm just coming right at you. Let's see if you get out of the way. Or... I have a right, giant frame. Took a sweet time getting out there. <laughs> I have delay a the game. frame picture of Jersh <laughs> on my wall waving Escobar home on that inside the park home run. And on his face, I swear to God, it looks like it looks like he already knows they just won the World Series. It's like the first pitch <laughs> of the World Series. And just the smile on his face as he's waving Esky's home, you can just tell by the by the look he's giving Esky is like we just won the World Series. Like you can put the rest of it away. It's going to be four, five, six, or seven games, but you could tell they won it. So I framed it it's right around the corner up here. But it's just a giant picture of Jersey's face with Escobar in the in the foreground. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, that's so, so cool. All right, Will. So since you're a two time guest, you've already answered the baseball history question. So I'll couch it a little different way. You could face one batter in baseball history with your like your stuff, what you know, whatever your 102 and all that. Who do you want to face? I mean, Michael Massey. <laughs> Come on, spring training. Let's go. <laughs> no, I that's, expect that's nothing question. less than the first one at my head. And it's not necessarily like the person that like you think you could strike out, but like just to see them in the box and like face them and like that cat and mouse game. I don't know. I like. Grew up uh, when Barry Bonds was kind of going at it. And obviously what he did was regardless of what went on behind the scenes was just unreal uh, at the plate. And I, I think I would like to face him and see how far he'd hit the baseball. Just give him, give him a little show me fastball and just see what happens. Yeah. I don't, I think any pitch I throw him is going, That's going pretty far. So probably, probably hitting it in the McCubby Cove. Yeah. You just yeah. describe a 101 mile an hour fastball as a little show me fastball. <laughs> That's, that's the way Joel just described 100-mile-an-hour fastballs. Little show-me fastball, triple digits, right down the middle. I don't care if it's very – it's hard to hit when it's moving that. You can't, you can't even see it. I think the fastest fastball I ever saw was like 93. And I say saw, I never saw it. I came out of my shoes, fouled it off, tipped it, but I never saw it. So I, don't, I can't actually comprehend what – I mean, and I've seen – I've cranked machines up to 100. It's so like I get it. But I can't comprehend like what that looks like, knowing that it could potentially like spin a different direction coming out of the same delivery. So I'm glad I've never had that. That's what we like to call no integrity. I always give client crap when a guy throws a hundred and he throws me a two-o breaking ball. No, no integrity. <laughs> throw a heater. Throw a that's heater, a- client. You throw a hundred. 
It's why, it's why like my favorite baseball saying is three, one changeups. Why I have trust issues. Yeah. Like, have some integrity, you know, respect the game. Yeah. Fair enough. Hey, you fell behind three, one. It wasn't my fault. You couldn't find the zone, you know, <laughs> I'm not asking you to throw two heaters down the middle. <laughs> Well, guys, this has been awesome. Again, congratulations on the championship. Enjoy your off season. But by the way, so if you're not playing baseball, doing it, what are you guys doing? Like, what's like the go-to like hobby at this point? Well, I've moved with the uh, yeah golf, golf for another month in Chicago, and then that's about it on that. Uh, I roomed with Logan Porter, so Logan's a really, really good guitar player. Uh, so I'm musically challenged. Um, <laughs> but I ended up, I bought a guitar. So my, my off season job is to learn how to play the guitar. Yeah. I'll be golfing for, uh, like you said, like the next month and then probably just working on video games at that point, taking care of some cats, stuff like that. All right. Awesome guys. Like I said, enjoy your off season. Love to have you on again and, uh, best of luck next year. Hopefully we'll talk to you before the next season starts. Anytime, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us on.